Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Okay, so most people understand that there is no shame in working for money. What else would you work for, right? I have flipped burgers, cleaned toilets, scoured bedpans, all of this not out of the goodness of my heart, no, but for a paycheck. There's nothing wrong with that. We call it the American way. But even in a hyper-capitalistic context, there are things that we recoil from people getting paid to do. Maybe because um, we think they shouldn't be done at all. Today, from WNYC, we proudly present a very special snap judgment. We're calling it The Mercenary. The Mercenary. I'm asking you to clear the next hour because we're going to break format a bit and stick with a single story you absolutely positively need to hear. Thank me later. Right now, hold on tight. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment. Now then, please be advised. We'll have something for the youngsters next week. But this is not it. It is Lego time for the little ones. Because our first story starts in the middle of Liberia's civil war. Documentary filmmaker James Brabazon wanted to film one of the rebel groups as they tried to overthrow the warlord-turned-president Charles Taylor. So James made a deal to be embedded in the ranks of the rebel soldiers as they fought their way toward the capital. working behind rebel lines quite deep into Liberia. At that stage, I had no idea quite how deeply behind rebel lines and for how long. James walked into Liberia's civil war with a camera and a mission. My ambition, almost uniquely, had been to meet the rebels, to prove that they existed, to interview their leadership. Some very serious regional commentators and organizations had doubted that there was a war going on at all. I I wanted to prove that it was really happening. The initial plan was very modest. I thought that to prove that the rebels existed, to see them in action and to interview their leadership, I probably needed three weeks. Near a border outpost, he met with a representative for the rebel group, Liberians United for Reconciliation and Democracy the Lerd. They agreed that James could travel with them as they marched through the country, town by town, towards the capital Monrovia, 
where they planned on taking out the government of then-President Charles Taylor with machine guns and RPGs. So things that can go wrong can be being injured in a firefight, getting separated from the people that you're walking with and getting lost in the forest, heat stroke, dehydration. The country had seen many years of civil war by this time. Rebel groups had become famous for their violent attacks on civilians. So James took a little protection with him on his journey. He hired a private mercenary, a guy named Nick Detroit. I hired Nick because, you know, I knew my limitations. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to kind of help myself if I was injured or if there was a problem. James is a documentary filmmaker from England, a journalist trying to report a story about the devastating impact of a war in Africa. And Nick Detroit was a guy who had spent his life fighting wars across Africa as a career soldier of fortune. You know, he was someone that had fought in defense of apartheid South Africa. And, you know, being part of South Africa's apartheid army had the sort of same moral equivalence to me as someone who'd served in the SS in the German army. It wasn't something that I was intellectually or morally well predisposed towards. When I met Nick, he was a an extremely unprepossessing character. You know, he looked, he was very mild-mannered, very, um, very self-effacing, very quiet, and not at all the image of a professional soldier that you would expect. You know, going in, I suppose, I felt a sense of, of curiosity towards Nick. Who was this man? What had he done? And what was his real motivation for going in with me? Was it simply to help a filmmaker in Liberia or was there perhaps another motive? So with a change of clothes and some extra batteries, Nick and James began their long walk with the lured rebels through the Liberian countryside. It started off, you know, quite a nice, cool walk one morning from one of the rebel firebases. And by the end of that first day, I was already thinking, oh, I don't know how I can do this. Thick canopy jungle with dense scrub, tiny little pathways to follow. There were these enormous tree roots which could be as high as your waist snaking over the path which you'd constantly have to climb over would crawl under. There were streams and rivulets that you had to either wade across or walk over. Metal blasted remnants of what had once been very picturesque jungle villages. At night we would sleep in um, destroyed buildings. We met some retreating soldiers carrying wounded colleagues. We saw evidence of the war the nearer we got. And pretty soon they were faced with one of the country's most dangerous threats. I will save you and your audience the grisly details of what severe amoebic dysentery looks, smells and sounds like, but um, Nick would hold me up by my wrists while I defecated into a ditch. Uh, He would then clean me up, drag me back into the hut and lie me down in my cot so I could go to sleep. And you know what? It turns out that once another man has held you up while you take it into a ditch, you're either mates or you're not. And at that point, I couldn't have cared less what Nick had done in his military career, to whom or for what reason. He was my mate. He sorted me out. James got so sick that they had lost almost all the time he had scheduled for filming. After three weeks, I had filmed almost precisely nothing. James called his production company and they said, sorry man, you're out of money. So I was then on 
on my satellite phone having this conversation, having a look over at Nick, who was dressed in full South African Special Forces uniform with a Kalashnikov across his knees and about 300 rounds of ammunition strapped to his chest, thinking <laughs> this is going to be an extremely difficult conversation to have. And, um, you know, kind of the nature of mercenaries is kind of that they get paid to be there. So I, I walked over to him and said, look, I've got... Um, I've, I've got some, some bad news. I'm afraid we're going to have to call it a day and go home. Uh, we don't have any more money, kind of, at all, and definitely not to pay you with. Uh, and he was uh, very calm. He just said, look, you know, if you don't make this film, everything we've done up till now has been in vain. You don't have anything to sell. You can't possibly make any of the money back. So let's keep going. And he agreed to stay with me for free and that he would do the trip without being paid. So they kept going all the way to the front lines of the war. And for the next month, James and Nick encountered an almost incessant onslaught of bullets and bombs. This is actual recording from their footage. We spent, I think, nearly 28 days pretty much continuously in combat. There were, in fact, multiple times in combat where he saved my life by dragging me out of the path of a rocket-propelled grenade. You know, there were moments of intense, existentially threatening action. And hours and hours and hours and hours of boredom, sitting on the balcony of the blown-out house where we were staying in 100-degree Fahrenheit heat, just shooting the breeze. The two men slept in the same bed together every night, and every day filmed exactly what happens in a very brutal war. There had been a fairly substantial battle going on for most of the morning, some of which I'd filmed. And the rebels had taken a prisoner. We walked up to the sort of patio area behind uh, an abandoned house where they had this guy sitting on the floor. I, um, I started to film. They began to torture the prisoner, started to put cigarettes out on him. Uh, then they cut his ears off. They dragged him down the street, chanting. I filmed all of this, and they gave me an interview while they were doing it. I felt very strongly at the time that it was something I needed to film, and there's absolutely no way that I wasn't going to film it. And I felt that by switching the camera off and refusing to film it, it sent a very powerful signal to them, which would not necessarily be in my own interests. Um, I didn't want them to feel that I was judging them. We were walking back up the main street, up the hill, back to the room where we were staying, and Nick just turned around to me and said, you know, they only did that for the camera. Nick meant that that prisoner of war had been tortured and butchered because I'd been there filming. Be a lie to say that I was not in somehow, in some way, participating. That's a very hard thing to digest. When I got back to the house that evening, I went to sleep and the only way I can describe it is I lay there and I replayed in my mind what had happened. And I thought to myself, you, you will never be able to unsee this. You'll never unlearn this. It was almost as if I felt as if I was, felt as if I was falling through the back of my own head in this sort of free fall. 
working in conflict like that, it's like pig iron on your moral compass. It's very hard to steer true. Everything around you is violence and obscenity. What is it in you that keeps you pointing in the right direction? And that's what I was finding out, how robust my compass was. The sense of moral confusion that came out of that war, for me, wasn't just the acts of brutality, but the fact that they were carried out by people who were looking after my best interests. I would sit down with rebel commanders in the morning. We might have a bowl of rice if we were lucky. We'd share a last cigarette. We'd talk about, you know, our families, girlfriend, what we wanted to do after the war. And then, maybe later on that day, I'd film them executing a prisoner. And then that night, they'd come round and sit on the balcony with me and we'd share another cigarette. That's very difficult to assimilate. And that led us into some very dark, moral quandaries. At one point, government forces were closing in on the rebels, and also on James and Nick. It looked like it could actually get very ugly for all of them. So James let the rebels use his satellite phone, which they used to get more ammunition. Now he wasn't just documenting the war, he was participating in it. There is no such thing as being a neutral observer in war. There's no such thing as being the independent reporter. There will come a point at which you need to act in your own self-defense in war. After one last very, very bad ambush, um, where we had to get up and run through a lot of heavy machine gun fire, I put the cameras away, and that was it. I just concentrated on getting out. You know, Nick and I walked nearly 300 miles out of that jungle together. So by the time we finally left Liberia, um, it was like saying goodbye to your kind of college roommate from hell. By the time Liberia's civil war had ended, more than 250,000 people had died. The country was completely broken down. Schools, hospitals, roads, everything was pockmarked or blown up. Almost a million people fled as refugees. Another million were displaced inside the country. James tried to return to his tidy life in England. You know, when I got back from that trip, it's only then that you really realise how you've been affected by it. And you know, it's such a luxury to be able to talk about battle fatigue, you know, to, to, to talk to someone about post-traumatic stress or almost entire population of Liberia in some way or another was exposed to some form of combat stress. So, you know, I'm, I'm wary and slightly sceptical of middle-class white journalists talking about how horrific their time in Africa was when really that's kind of beside the point. But, but yes, it's like falling into darkness. It's hard to see in the darkness. It's hard to find your way. When I came back to the UK, it's very hard to reintegrate into kind of polite English society when the people that you really want to hang out with are basically war criminals. It doesn't put you in a good place. Um, I, I was a mess, you know, I had a, I'd lost a lot of muscle mass, had a massive wild shaggy beard, my eyes, you know, were dark and it collapsed back into my head a little bit, I looked awful. You know, I had 
terrible scabies, so I had scabs and I itched, and I mean, I was just a mess. To keep himself sane, he kept in contact with his friend, Nick Detroit. And after a few months, James boarded a plane and flew back to West Africa to meet up with Nick. The journalist and the mercenary sat down for a beer on a humid tropical night and discussed the options for two men in need of a war. It's not over. Not by a long shot. Keep it locked to find out what happens next. You're not going to believe what James and Nick are about to do. When Snap Judgment, the mercenary episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the mercenary episode. When last we left, filmmaker James Brabazon had flown to a small West African country and was just sitting down planning his next move with his friend, the mercenary. Me and Nick sitting on the veranda of our hotel in Guinea Conakry, drinking warm beer. And it was there that he announced to me that he had a new project on the go, which was effectively to overthrow the government of a sovereign nation to remove the president from power and I sat and listened to him pretty much exactly outline that he was going to be involved in a mercenary led seizure of power and I I mean he looked slightly in disbelief himself like he was saying it to me almost as if he was testing the idea out. He asked me, straightforwardly, whether or not I would like to film it. The idea of filming a mercenary-led seizure of power was just, I mean, let's be honest, too good to turn down. What I believed was is that it was a story that definitely needed to be told. This was an event which could potentially change the lives of tens, hundreds of thousands of people, and someone needed to be able to tell it as it actually happened. And I and here, I just thought, yeah, let's do it. I'll film it. And then came the sucker punch. It's like, ah, oh, great, you'll do it. See, the thing is that um, we need you to do us a favour as well. Because what we want to do is make it look like uh, a local uprising and not a mercenary-led operation. So rather than it looking like a bunch of former apartheid-era white um, mercenaries overthrowing a sovereign nation, we want to make it look like um, it's been a local uprising against tyranny. And the way that we're going to do that is by putting lots of um, black mercenaries into local uniforms surrounded by the person that we're going to put in power And then if you can film it in such a way so that we can only see the new guy and the black troops so we can't see any white faces, what we'll then do is release that footage to the world. Now that's an entirely different proposition to going along with your mates and filming a military operation to overthrow a president. That is agreeing to participate in a mercenary-led seizure of power, which I'm pretty sure is against international law. I agreed to do it because if I'd said no at that point, all access to that operation would have ended. I would have closed the door. It was a no-brainer. 
Well, you could have said no. You could have said, I'm, that's, that's too far. I'm not interested. Thanks so much. Have fun. You see, yeah, in theory, it would be possible to reject an offer like that. And of course, I could have done. I'm having a beer with a friend of mine who has, I mean, say, absolutely directly saved my life on numerous occasions. The person that, with the exception of my mother, you know, I'm closest to in the world. And he's saying, yeah, let's just keep doing this thing that we're really good at. Let's keep having this adventure. I mean, I hate to say this, but it was exciting. You know? I mean, there are reasons why young men go to war. There are reasons why young men have always gone to war and will always go to war, which is because one of the unspeakable truths about war is that it's fun. And that is a very hard lesson for people to learn. But if people don't accept that as the truth, you'll never be able to understand why young men go, what motivates them to go to war. And I was a young man motivated to go to war, so I went for it. And there was one more thing. War and fighting were in James's bloodline. My last name, Brabazon, my surname, my family name, it means mercenary. One of his grandfathers had actually fought as a mercenary in foreign wars. And his mom's dad, who had partially raised James, had fought for the British in North Africa. You know, he was very clear that he was very proud of what he did. But he did it because he had to, not because he wanted to particularly. He had to fight in the war because it was a war of national survival. As far as he was concerned, it was his duty to do it. You know, that's something I really fundamentally misunderstood as a child and, a, and as an adult. I, I was very seduced by my grandfather's stories of the war, but I failed to understand that they went because they had to. And when I went to war, I went for some very unpalatable reasons. Yeah, the, the coup was <clears throat> imminently about to happen. And I was expecting a call from, from Nick at any moment. And my grandfather was really very, very ill. Um, and then he passed away. So I told Nick that I would be sorting out the arrangements for the funeral. I went to our family house in Kent I switched my phone off, I had no access to email, and for nearly two weeks I was in, you know, grieving, arranging the funeral, burying my grandfather. When I came back from Kent to London, I got back to my apartment, opened the curtains, switched on the radio, Almost the first thing that happened was a news report that had just come in that a plane load of suspected mercenaries had been arrested in Zimbabwe. My heart just sank. I knew immediately what it was. It was like someone had reached out of the radio set and shaken me by the neck. It's happened. You've missed it, but it's gone so terribly wrong. Nick was convicted of treason and sentenced to 34 years in Black Beach Prison, which is Africa's most notorious jail, a title for which, by the way, there is not inconsiderable competition. Um, he was tortured. Um, he was bound hand and foot. He was kept in solitary confinement in a tiny cell in the dark. I felt guilty. I wanted to be there with them. 
I felt I felt that I'd let them down by not being there I felt I'd let Nick down by not being with him it was only as it began to sink in and details emerged of how exceptionally brutal their treatment had been that I realised that my grandfather's death had handed me another life I mean they tortured someone to death within the first couple of days you know and I'm <laughs> I was just a kid from South London you know what? how was I going to stand up to that so in retrospect profoundly glad that I didn't go but I it was a complicated emotional moment I'd find myself going to award ceremonies or dinners, drinking champagne, having a lovely time. And Nick was in jail in fear of his life. That was very difficult. At times like that, would often feel, man, I wish I was with you. I wish I wasn't here, I wish I was there with you because I would feel more real. I would feel like a better person if I was there with you rather than with this bunch of people. But you know, that's vanity too. Because you come, if you come into the room and say, right, okay, fine, boom, put down your glass of champagne, here are the handcuffs, we're off, coming? Of course, the answer would have been no. I thought I knew enough about war to be careful what you wished for. But um, I didn't know quite enough. And perhaps I, I wished for too much. James's friend, Nick Detroit, was released from Black Beach Prison five and a half years after his capture. We'll have a link to James Brabazon's book, My Friend the Mercenary, on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score and sound design was by Leon Morimoto, and the story, it was produced by Anna Sussman. When Snap continues, we're going to do some very, very strange things for money, and we're not going to be ashamed. When Snap Judgment, the mercenary episode continues... Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from WNYC, the mercenary episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today, real people go to very different places to find their own heart of darkness. And what ground can be more scary, more fraught than the middle of someone else's relationship? Jonathan Kickbush thought he knew what he was doing when he broke up with his girlfriend in late 2011. But the breakup turned messy, and it left him more hurt than he thought. And coincidentally, at the same time, without expecting it whatsoever, I was laid off for my full-time job. And when I found myself without a girlfriend and without a job, I wasn't actually sure what I should look for first. So Jonathan did what any single unemployed person does. He moped around the house, watched Netflix, and surfed the web. And I found a website that enabled people to offer jobs that they're willing to do for one another. And since I just lost my job, I thought, well, this is great. You know, maybe there's something that I can do. I ended up going to a party and at this party, one of my friends tells me that he wants to break up with his girlfriend and he just doesn't have the guts to do it. So he ends up asking me if I'm willing to do it for him. And John, being the good friend that he was, he did it. He screwed up his courage, walked over to this guy's girlfriend and broke up with her. And it turns out that her side of the story was pretty much the same. She wanted to break up with him and didn't know how to do it. So. 
If it wasn't for me to intervene in that situation, they might have never broken up and been unhappy for a much, much longer time. That's when the thoughts started going through my mind that, well, I've just done this for someone else. Why can't I do this for complete strangers? Just break up with people on other people's behalf. It came to the stage where I had it written out and I kept on reading through it, trying to work out if I'm losing my mind or not. You know, it's not something that I could even go to all my friends and talk to about because I wasn't sure if I was going to get ridiculed. But at the same time, I thought to myself, if somebody is so desperate to have to order my service, they're probably better off not to be in that relationship anymore. And so, that night, the site went live, and John christened himself what, for all he knew, was the world's first professional breaker-upper. And now, I'm checking the website day after day to see if anybody wants to book the job. And I looked into my inbox, and there it was. It was a young guy from the UK saying, hey, do you still offer this service? And so I sat there for a little while and I constructed a reply saying, yes, the service is still going on, but I would like to hear a little bit more about your relationship. And they said, well, you know, we've been together for almost five years. There's no love anymore. We don't talk to each other very much. We literally go to work, we come home, we go to bed. And he just doesn't have the heart to tell her face to face that he wants to break up with her. So I asked him how he would like me to do it for him. And he said, oh, well, if you could do it by text message, that would be great because he wanted the transcript. So I I got her number and I got her name. Wait wait, wait a second. Wait, you didn't think this was a a bad idea by text? This sounds like a, a terrible idea. Yeah, but see, doing it by text was good for me for the first job because in a way, I could hide my face behind that phone as much as he could hide his face behind mine. And so how do you, yeah, and so how do you text her from a a burner phone? I mean, I I did exactly that. As as silly as it sounds, I used a spare cell phone that I had on a spare SIM card and my hands were sweaty. I went, oh, let's do this. Let's not do this. Uh, You know, it was as crazy as asking out your first girlfriend. And I messaged her and I introduced myself as the guy's friend and she said oh hi how can I help you and I said well you know Roger has asked me to uh, get in touch with you about something that's a little bit of a touchy subject and I don't quite know how to start this and she was still very much confused why this random guy called John was getting in touch with her so she was a little bit on the defense said okay carry on so I said how are things going with you two? And that's when she started opening up to a complete and utter stranger and saying, well, you know, for about the last year, there's not really been anything in our relationship anymore. Uh, We just go to work, we come home, we eat and sleep. And I go, wait, wait just a second. That's exactly how Roger feels. And she was quite relieved as if it was a massive weight lifted off her. And so I said, well, you know, what, what are you going to take from this? And she goes, well, I'm going to break up with them. I said, well, that's ideal because now I don't have to break up with you. And she just said, you know what? Thank you so much, John. You've really helped me out today. And now it's time to move on and find the love of my life. And I thought, well, this is great, isn't it? It's basically resolved itself. And keep in mind, This wasn't Jonathan's first successful breakup. It was his second. And suddenly, his business, it didn't seem so crazy. And after that, it sort of just gained traction and gained momentum. And I was getting more confident with it and I was getting happier to do it. And I started posting little tips and what I would try and do is I would try and convince them to do it themselves and to coach themselves through it and only sort of use me as a last resort. And the thing is, hard as this may be to believe, most of John's assignments, they were kind of like that first couple. They went really well. Most of his targets would thank him for sparing them from a terrible relationship, shake his hand, and move on. And in part, this was because Jonathan was really good at figuring out what to say in these situations. But also, what not to say. One of the things that I learned very quickly to do 
is never accuse the person of anything. You know, people might tell you the funniest things, the funniest and weirdest reasons as to why they want to break up with someone. But trust me, you calling someone you don't know and telling them that somebody wants to break up with them because their feet smell really bad does not go down well. All of which is not to say that Jonathan became totally comfortable with his job. He still had some big reservations. Every moment of it was I thinking, should I be doing this? Am I doing this right? Am I helping people or am I not helping people? It's very split, as you can imagine. A lot of my guy friends uh, were applauding the idea and thinking it was the greatest thing since sliced bread, whereas a lot of my female friends were very skeptical about it and were very unhappy that such a service should even exist. I had many mishaps where people just didn't believe me who I am, thought I was spoofing them, or started just insulting me. You know, you why are you doing this? You shouldn't be doing this for people. I hope you die. I hope you die in a horrible way. I, I just had to take it on the chin because you are seeing somebody else that you've never met in a very emotional state and some of them get quite angry and agitated, but most of them get sad. And seeing that moment where the penny drops and they realize that this is for real and that that person wants to break up with them, that is heartbreaking. That was really a, a big, big burden to carry over time. And so when I got home, I always had a terrible back afterwards. And just the same way that I imagine a police officer or a fireman would do it, I sort of almost took my uniform off and just tried to sort of rid myself of that once I was done with the with the job. One of these days, I met a girl myself, you know, I met her um, in a bar and I really liked her. And when we had a brief conversation and we got to know each other, she asked me what I did for a living. And it was that moment that I contemplated if it would be important to go down the line of saying what I do and what my chances of seeing this girl again would be if I told her. So I decided to tell her a lie that I had been made redundant from my old job and that I was just looking for something new, not even thinking about the fact that I could be dating this girl just a couple of days later um, and that I would have to continue with that lie. As we were getting deeper into the relationship and we were actually seeing each other uh, more regularly, it was very difficult to sort of make up what was going on and why I was absent or why I was spending a lot of time in front of my computer or why I didn't want her to come round on a certain day when I'd planned to, um, you know, carry out some of these breakups. And it was really strange because it was probably the only lie that I ever told her. Eventually, though, as it always does, the truth came out. A friend of his girlfriend's found his website, and then she told her what he did for a living. And so the next thing that I got was a very angry series of text messages telling me of, how can I hide something like this? How can I do something like this? She was really quite shocked and taken aback. and said, you know, I can't tell my friends that this is what you do. So I just said, well, you know... I I just haven't told you because I haven't thought about it. Um, and, <laughs> Is that even uh, a plausible excuse? <laughs> of course it's not. I couldn't, I couldn't face telling her and getting exactly that reaction. Which is ironic. Which is very ironic. I didn't have the face to say it myself. I didn't have the balls, so to say, to, um, to step up to her and say, look, you know, I break up with other people. Um, I break up couples and you know I think the end of the, the whole conversation was the, her saying well you don't have to hire anybody because I'm breaking up with you so, so wait let me turn this around on you then would you have been willing to use your own service to confess to her for you? that would have been great I would have loved to have hired somebody to tell the uh, girl that broke up with me what I was doing for a living but but in in a greater sense, wouldn't wouldn't the even better hypothetical be to have just had the had the courage to just tell her yourself? 
100%. To be able to tell somebody, build up the courage and do it, means a thousand times more than going to someone and, you know, hiring them to transmit the message, whatever the message may be. I think that giving that person that face-to-face is is what they deserve. Yeah, it's really, I don't know. You're, I feel like you're all like almost on the verge of repudiating your own service there then because it's like you're enabling cowardice. It's like if you say it's a thousand times better to have the courage to do it yourself and to tell the person face to face, why why give them an out? Because because there's there's somebody out there that has to do the dirty work for those people who are just not going to do it. And that's me. Big thanks to Jonathan and I'm sorry if you're thinking what I think you're thinking, but Jonathan got out of the breakup business a short while later. His current girlfriend knows all about it. That story was produced by Joe Rosenberg with sound design by Renzo Gorio. Okay, so it was summertime. I needed a job. Saw an ad that said, jobs available. Didn't say which kind of job, just job. What the heck? I called the place. They told me to come in. I arrived at this little office, and I'm already starting to get a bad feeling, but I steal myself and open the door. And this guy, older, slick hair, pinstripe suit, one gold tooth, he greets me, handshake extended. Hey, uh, you must be Glenn. I can't tell you how happy we are to see you this morning. Uh-huh. You're probably thinking, how can I make the big money like this guy? Uh, well, I'm going to show you. In fact, I'm going to send you out with my best guy. My very best guy is going to show you how it's done. But first, do you like gadgets? Because every real man likes gadgets. You want the newest thing, am I right? Well, I'm going to show you the best gadget you're ever going to see. It's a deluxe, top-of-the-line model. Don't you worry, because soon as you show this baby off, it's going to sell itself. And then he points to it. 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 It is a vacuum cleaner. This baby will suck the shine off a kitchen sink. Let him get a load of that allergy filtration canister technology and see him start reaching for their checkbooks. I look at the price tag. $1,500 for a vacuum cleaner. Martin, am I right? Am I right? Martin comes out. He's shorter and dumpier than the first guy. Right you are, Mr. Axel. Well, don't stand around here. Go make this guy some money. I follow Martin back outside. I get into his Eldorado. He loads a shiny new vacuum cleaner in the back and we're off. And we're driving. I ask him, Martin, who buys $1,500 vacuum cleaners? And Martin's delighted with the question. I'll tell you who. I'll tell you who. Old people, that's who. They're my specialty. Yeah, yeah. You see, shut-ins are happy just to have someone to talk to. You can sell them anything you want. Just get them to open the door. It's taking candy from a baby. I- I'm feeling sick. When we pull up to this house, Martin's already crowing. We're going to have this one sold before breakfast. He rings the doorbell, and a sweet little old lady with blue eyes, wearing a sky-blue dress, opens the door. Ma'am, we're here for the vacuum demonstration you requested. Oh yes, come on in. She shows us inside her very tidy home. Martin starts up. Now, I'm going to show you something unbelievable. You have a very neat and clean home, ma'am, but you're going to be alarmed by the amount of grime and pestilence lurking in full view. Martin goes to work. He vacuums the living room floor, then shows her the vacuum filter. Oh my, but I wonder if this machine can work in hallways. Oh, it certainly can, man, it certainly can. Martin is up racing down the hallway, barking about the amazing power of his vacuum cleaner. Well, surely bedroom dirt is different. Not different enough, there's Martin showing how his vacuum can get under the bed. 
Well, what about that wall banister? And then the little old lady actually winks at me when she says, but can it clean kitchen floors? I have to stop myself from laughing out loud. Martin is put in work. She's got him using special tools to get behind the refrigerator. He's vacuuming hardwood floors. And when Martin's cleaned the entire house, she says, well, I'll think about it. But I might need another demonstration next week before my bridge club arrives. Then she sends us packing out the front door. Martin is overjoyed. We're this close. He seems genuinely disappointed when I ask him to drop me off. You're quitting already? Think about the money you're missing out on. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, dude, but Mama, she didn't raise a sucker. but not the end of the journey. Subscribe to the podcast. Get full episodes, bonus material at snapjudgment.org. Facebook, Snap Judgment. Twitter, Snap Judgment. It was produced by the team, certainly not swayed by money. There he is, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pabacini Miller, Anna Sussman, Julia DeWitt, Renzo Gorio, Joe Rosenberg, Nancy Lopez, Jasmine Aguilera, and Will Urbina. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could pay someone to secure your home and he could pay someone else to rob it and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap.